in Jerusalem. They yell out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. And in the lead up to Easter this year, we will spend time with him in the last week of his life before his death in the city as he engages with the crowds, as he prepares the disciples for the Easter weekend and as the conflict with the religious leaders hots up and reaches its climax. Today in Luke 20, we have an encounter with the temple leaders that is full of high energy and high politics as the leaders challenge Jesus with who he is. So let's pray as we start our time together. Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us and showing us the way of salvation through faith in your Son. Teach us through your word and equip us for every good work, for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, how do you feel about people who are in authority over you? The leaders who have power and control. It might be your boss or your direct supervisor, the person you report to. Maybe it's the principal at the school that you teach at. Maybe it's your parents or a university lecturer or a teacher. Do you find it hard to have someone controlling your day, your working week or your life? I must admit that I'm not all that great with authority. When I was studying at Bible College, I lived in a residential house and I moved into that college after living out of home for quite a while. And the interesting thing about this college was they had lots of rules, lots and lots of things that we were not allowed to do. And they had a particular punitive approach. If you broke the rules, you were fined. We were fined if we missed meals. We were fined for missing a chore. We were fined if we didn't walk our visitors to the front door. I was once fined for having a flower pot on my windowsill. Such a great sin. It drove me nuts. I suggested to those in authority that perhaps with all the fines that I had paid that year, they could build a swimming pool on the roof of the college and call it the Kaz Andrews Memorial Swimming Pool with all the fine money that I had contributed. They were not amused. It really did drive me nuts. And I found it terribly hard to submit to the authority of the college. And how do you go? Well, in today's passage, we focus on the question of authority as the important temple leaders challenge Jesus as he teaches. So tonight we're going to look at authority challenged, what happens when you reject God's authority and what it looks like to live under Jesus' authority. So firstly, authority challenged. So we have a standoff as we start in Luke 20. In chapter 19, after Jesus has come into Jerusalem on the donkey, he heads straight for the temple. 
and he causes quite a lot of commotion as he drives out the cellars and upturns tables and calls out the corruption that has been happening in the building. He is unsurprisingly on the leader's radar. The section in verse 19 tells us, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find a way to do it because all of the people hung on his word. The stage is set. The religious leaders are determined that Jesus must go, but the people are captivated by this Jewish teacher from Galilee. So Luke 20 starts. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the, of the law, together with their elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Now, the question's a pretty natural one. Here is a teacher who has disrupted the temple just a few days ago. He's now teaching in the temple and the crowds are hanging on his every word. So they ask him, what right do you have to do this? The chief priests and the teachers of the law are under threat. The whole temple system is challenged and the temple leaders do what lots of people do when they're under threat. They push back. And they request that Jesus gives an account of where his authority comes from. They know one thing for sure, his authority does not come from the classic leadership path found in the temple. And so Jesus answers, and he answers as he often does, with a question. He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Now, it feels like a bit of a strange question, but it's brilliant because it stumps them. They say, they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where he was from. It's kind of funny to imagine these temple leaders, important men, taking so long to answer a question. They discuss it among themselves, they weigh up the options, and they are dreadfully fearful of their, what will happen for the people. What will their reaction be? And at the moment, the crowd sits on the side of John the Baptist and of Jesus. Ironically, the leaders are meant to be the ones who are in authority. They're meant to be God's representatives in the temple, but instead they are people who are scared of what people might do. And so they answer, no comment. It's a classic political answer. But Jesus isn't just throwing them a random question to stump them. His question is actually related to authority as well the authority of John the Baptist. And it stumps the leaders because if they acknowledge that John was a prophet from God, then they have to acknowledge two very key things. 
Firstly, they need to acknowledge, they would need to acknowledge that Israel needed to repent and return to God because that was John the Baptist's message. As he baptised people in the desert, in the River Jordan, he called people to repent. He called the leadership of the temple and the people to acknowledge that they drifted far from God and into disobedience. And that was deeply problematic for the current leadership. They believed that everything was fine and that they, were good, that they and God were all good. And secondly, for the leaders to acknowledge that John the Baptist was sent from God meant acknowledging that he was a prophet who prepared the way for the king, for the Messiah. He was the one who was described as an Elijah figure who would usher in God's king. And the leaders did not want to say that John the Baptist was the one that prepared the way for the Messiah because everyone in the crowd was asking that exact question. Was Jesus the long-promised king? Was he the one that God had sent? For the temple leaders to acknowledge that John the Baptist was sent from God before the crowds may encourage people to trust in Jesus. They may conclude that he is God's son, he is God's king. So as always from Jesus, it's a really clever question that cuts right to the centre of things. If John the Baptist is a true prophet and sent from God, then Jesus might be also. So the leaders, without surprise, respond, no comment. And then Jesus follows up with a not-so-subtle parable about authority and what it looks like when people reject God's authority in their life. So the parable starts. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. Now, it's a familiar rural setting. It's a kind of classic start to a parable. You have a vineyard and some tenant farmers. However, for the original listeners, they would know some things instantly, some clues that Jesus is giving. Because often in the Old Testament, God was talked about as the person who planted a vineyard. And that vineyard was meant to be Israel. God had a plan that Israel would be a vineyard that was fruitful, a vineyard that was designed to bear lots and lots of fruit and to bring blessing to people. And so with that framework, Jesus goes on. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyards. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but they, that one was also beaten and, the, and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. The owner of the vineyard sends representatives, rent, uh, rent collectors, and the tenant farmers, instead of giving them the profits of, of the vineyard, treat them terribly. They beat them, they wound them, they treat them shamefully, and they send them away empty-handed. 
And the parable is speaking about the prophets of the Old Testament, men who were sent by God to speak for him. And we see them throughout the Old Testament, people who come to correct or to rebuke the leaders, to call Israel back to God and to encourage them to trust in him, encourage them to be a, a nation that loved God and loved their neighbour. And how did Israel respond to the prophets sent from God? Well, like the parable said, Israel rejects them, physically harms them, and fails to listen to them. Most recently, they had done it with John the Baptist, who was decapitated by Herod. Now, it's unthinkable that the vineyard owner would let such things happen. But the, this parable reminds us that God is patient and long-suffering and shows grace to Israel time and time again, despite their ongoing rejection of him. So the owner comes up with a new plan. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Outrageous, shocking behaviour to kill the vineyard's owner's own son. But Jesus is already pointing to the events that will happen later in the week when Jesus will be beaten and killed by the leaders and the people of Israel. And he's signalling to them that a significant shift in God's relationship with Israel is coming. And instead of welcoming God's son, Israel rejects him and kills him. And Jesus' parable passes on even a greater warning to the tenants. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to the others. And this gets the crowd going. They yell out, God forbid. Now it's fascinating, they didn't call out God forbid when the prophets were killed or when the owner's son is killed. But here they are outraged at God's treatment of those who live in the vineyard. It's a sign that when the parable is spoken, the only part they really care about is the part that affects them. Because Jesus is telling them that Israel will be cut off from God's blessing for their rejection of God's son. It's a signal that the future kingdom, God's kingdom, his vineyard, will be made up of lots of different people. God's kingdom is about to be reshaped and extended and the crowds in Jerusalem are not happy. And Jesus continues to warn them and challenge them. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. 
It's a quote from Psalm 118. It's the quote that Peter read for us at the beginning of the service. It's a psalm that is meant to bring comfort to Israel and encouragement to them. But now Jesus turns it around. Judgment is coming on God's people. Jesus has arrived and he is a really unexpected stone. Jesus doesn't do what the people expect him to do. He hangs out with sinners and text collectors. He challenges the religious habits and laws of the time. And he is the stone that is rejected by the temple leaders. And yet Jesus is God's beloved son, the sent one, God's chosen one. And he is the one who will become the cornerstone, the one who will be the foundation of his new covenant and the kingdom. And Jesus is the one by whom all others will be judged. The people listening to Jesus, that crowd and the leaders, will need to acknowledge Jesus' authority. And if they don't acknowledge his authority, they will trip or be crushed to pieces. Because Jesus is saying that the rejection of him will be fatal. And that's a pretty confronting call for them and a call for us because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. All power belongs to him and Jesus is Lord of all. And that can be comforting or confronting for us. Our third point is what does it mean to live under the authority of Jesus? Well, do you have a problem with authority like I do? When I got to college and there were lots of rules, I raged. But there's lots of other ways that we respond to authority. We can be passive-aggressive. It can fill us with fears and doubts. You can rebel or push back. You can try and establish control in your own way. And yet at the heart of the Christian faith is the call of Jesus to submit to his authority. Tim Keller describes it like this. Resisting God's control is something we all do. And it can show up as hidden anger, as doubts, or wanting to be in control. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, God has made peace with us. And acknowledging this sacrifice is the key to stop denying, let go of control, and, pace, and base our lives on trust and surrender to God. That's the call of the Christian faith, to let go of control and base our lives instead on trust and surrender to God. And that can be a bit of a terrifying thought, except if the one that we trust is true and good and trustworthy. See, in this passage, Jesus warns people that all who reject him will be crushed. But he is also the king, the leader, the authority who was crushed for us. 
Isaiah 53 tells us, um, talking about Jesus, it's a prophecy, but it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So Jesus is crushed so that we don't have to be. He carries our sins, our rejections of God, all those times that we've disobeyed or rejected God's rule in our life, and he bears them for us. He calls us to submit to his authority, but he does it as the one who submitted to death for us. Jesus' authority is supreme, it's universal, but it is the authority of the one who loves us and sacrifices for us. We're about to join together in the Lord's Supper, a remembrance of Jesus' death for us. And it's a moment for us, a moment of us coming to God in repentance and faith and to express our need for Jesus' death to cover us, to symbolically submit to the Lordship of Jesus, who has authority over us and to whom we lovingly submit. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are Lord of all. You are good and kind. You are safe to trust. And when we submit to, our, to you, you give us life. Have mercy on us for the times we have not trusted you or rejected your authority in our lives. For the times when we are disobedient, when we are fearful or angry, when we seek to control our own lives. We praise and thank you that you were crushed so that we might live our lives in humble obedience to you. Amen. I'm just going to hand over to Alan, who's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper. Thanks, Kaz. Evening, everyone. Welcome to church tonight. And uh, as has been said earlier, welcome, especially if you're not normally here on a Sunday night with us. Uh, what we're about to do now is one of the the truly remarkable and special things that gatherings of Christian people do together, sharing together in the Lord's Supper. And I guess this explanation is especially perhaps for the benefit of those who aren't familiar with church life. Much of what it means to be a Christian is secret and internal. We talk about faith. We talk about spiritually being sisters and brothers in Christ. But in what we're about to do, uh, which was instituted by Jesus himself, we do something which is public and visible. By uh, eating the bread and by drinking the wine, it's uh, non-alcoholic and the um, wafer is gluten-free. Uh, gluten by drinking the wine and eating the bread, we're saying in full view of everybody else, my trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason I'm doing it with these other people is because I'm in fellowship with them. So it's an enormous, uh, enormously important thing that we do, and even though we do it every month and it's pretty familiar, before we start, I want to invite you to do this only if it's true of you. And that if it's not true of you as you sit here tonight, then uh, hold off doing it until it is true of you. 
because that's what we'd love to see for you, that you would have faith in Jesus and be able to do this in a wholehearted way. Uh, I'll give you a moment just to, to unwrap the, um, the bread and the wine, which we'll uh, have in a, a couple of minutes' time. If you haven't got uh, haven't got the little um, cup and the the wafer, I'll well, it's just coming down the building. Just indicate, and he'll he'll uh, give it to you if you want to join in. The Bible explains quite clearly how important this is, and I'm going to just read some words of introduction that reference the the Bible. <clears throat> 